Good morning. I'd like to start off today by reading our scripture from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. It's the familiar passage that introduces us to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her surprise encounter with God's angelic messenger, Gabriel. Let's hear God's word together, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Amen. Thanks be to God for this is his holy word. You know, I've got my uh, CDs out. I've got my iTunes playlist ready to go. My Pandora is all set up because tis the season for the great music of Christmas. And that's what really gets me into the Christmas spirit, listening to the great music of Christmas. And I don't mean Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer or, or Alvin and the Chipmunks singing about hula hoops or even Dominic the Christmas Donkey, which I didn't really know was a real song until I moved here to New Jersey. No, I mean the classic Christmas carols. The joy to the world, silent night, hark the herald angels sing, all the rest. I love the classic Christmas carols, not merely for the nostalgic feelings they bring, but because they are so rich in their theology and deep in the meaning of Christ's birth. I'd really encourage you to to spend some time reading and meditating on the words of the familiar Christmas carols, because I think you'll discover how how beautifully, how poetically they explain the tremendous significance of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his coming again. One thing I noticed as I read through the lyrics of, of some of the great Christmas hymns and carols is how often many of them express kind of two common themes, the presence of angels surrounding Jesus' birth and the experience of joy. Angels and joy. These two themes are woven together in many of the Christmas carols. Take the line from the first verse of of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You probably know it by heart. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host. Proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. You see, joy and angels sandwiched together around the birth of Jesus And this shouldn't surprise us because that's what we see in the Gospels as they tell the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. Angels and joy. 
That's why our Advent messages are focused on four angelic visitations that accompany Jesus' birth. You know, the largest concentration of angels anywhere in the Bible occurs right here in the first chapters of the Gospel of Luke and in the parallel Christmas stories in the Gospel of Matthew. We see angels informing, encouraging, guiding, rebuking, protecting, singing, shouting, worshiping. These angelic appearances are not a normal thing. Angels don't appear on every page of the Bible. Far from it. In fact, in the Bible, angelic interactions are reserved for things that are, that are quite extraordinary and unique when God is doing something special. In the Gospel of Luke, we see angels, especially the angel Gabriel, as God's appointed messengers. Gabriel appeared to the priest Zechariah earlier in chapter 1. And he's God's choice to deliver another divine message to a teenage girl named Mary. All the angelic appearances we're looking at this Advent have something in common. When angels appear, they change the trajectory of a person's life. A person is going, is going this way, and now they're going this way. God's messengers transform the lives of ordinary people who are just going about their ordinary routines. They change the person's life by revealing to them that the living God was doing something that was, was really beyond belief. God was, in fact, entering their world. God was physically entering their world. That's what the word incarnation means. It means literally in the flesh. God was entering the world in real flesh and blood, real body and bone. God would be born a human baby. And this is not an illusion. This is not a delusion. It's not a myth. It's not wishful thinking. It's not God pretending to be human. Not God being partially human, but 100% God and 100% human, both natures together. And the name of this miracle is Jesus. The Gospel of John describes Jesus' birth this way in verse 14, chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as it's paraphrased in the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that idea, moved into the neighborhood. In Jesus, God takes up residence in our world as a real person. And the impact of that angelic announcement on each one who heard it was really life-changing. And the message they brought is still life-changing today. The Son of God has become human so that humans might become children of God. God has opened the door for our forgiveness and our, and our total transformation, all achieved for us by Jesus himself. Jesus born so that we might experience a new birth in our hearts as God's spirit lives within us. And so really the goal of, of all our Christmas celebrations should be that we could echo those submissive words of Mary, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Now initially, Mary is pretty confused by the whole thing. I mean, how is she going to conceive a child when she's still a virgin? That doesn't make any sense to her at all. I mean, she understands the birds and the bees and how women get pregnant. And she wasn't naive in that regard. She knew that she was a virgin. In fact, the passage in Luke says she's a virgin three times just to make sure that we get the message that, that Jesus' conception was not going to happen the normal way. I mean, Gabriel is kind of going on and on about who this child is going to be. 
And Mary isn't all that interested in the theology lesson. She's kind of stuck on the practical. I don't think she really heard anything after he said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Uh, I mean, she sort of stops there. Her mind gets fixed there. And see, she kind of interrupts Gabriel and says, hey, angel, back that truck up just a little bit. I'm going to get pregnant. How? Mary may have been familiar with the Old Testament prophecy about the birth of the Messiah from Isaiah 7:14 that said therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. But that didn't explain what was going to happen to her or how she was going to explain her pregnancy to her fiance Joseph. So the angel Gabriel has to explain that God will cause her pregnancy. God will divinely inseminate her and she will become pregnant without a human father. That's the miracle of Jesus' conception so that Jesus wasn't you know, just an ordinary man who, who wanted to become God. He wasn't just a man who was the best ever example of a good man. He wasn't just a normal man whom God chose later on to be the Messiah or whom God adopted to be the very Son of God. No, he was unique. God's one and only son, as it says in John 3.16, completely like us and yet completely different from us. You see, apart from the angels, no one would have understood what was happening with the birth of Jesus. God had to reveal the meaning and the method of Jesus' birth. God had to disclose. God had to initiate the explanation. No one would have understood what his birth really meant or how it happened without the angels interpreting what was going on. Not the shepherds, not Joseph, not even Mary. Even with the appearance of the angel Gabriel, it still took her a while to get it. So folks, here's an important point. We only understand anything about God by revelation. God is the one who takes the first and the second and the third step to reveal what he is like to humanity. You see, religion is human beings trying to figure out God. That's why there are so many different religions in the world. Religion is people trying to figure out what's really going on in the universe based on our limitations of of our own knowledge and our own experience. So no wonder people come up with with all kinds of, of different, crazy, conflicting conclusions. Hundreds, thousands of religions, all made up by people. But the Bible teaches us that, that that's backwards. To know anything accurate about, about this being who created all things, that being has to disclose itself to us. We, we can't understand. Otherwise, we're totally lost in a fog of, of human confusion and speculation. No, the Bible says God wants us to know exactly what he is like, and he has taken every step to reveal himself, his nature, his character, his qualities to humanity. He does that through what he's created, through, through nature, as it says in Romans. But nature itself is not enough. The story of the Bible is the story of God taking one step after another to reveal himself directly to people. How he wants us to relate to him, how he wants to be worshipped, what his will is, what, what he defines as right and wrong. And ultimately, most specifically, he reveals himself through personally entering our world. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way. In the past, 
God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Did you hear that? Jesus the exact representation of God's being, God's essence. In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says Jesus is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. And that's why Jesus could even say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's John 14, 7. They're one and the same, so everything we ever wanted to know about God, we can find in Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the message announced by Gabriel to Mary. But Mary is troubled. She doesn't under, fully understand what God is going to do, but, but she's willing and she trusts that God knows what he's doing. It's only later that her joy comes out. If you keep on reading in chapter 1, her joy only comes out after she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, whose pregnancy was the subject of, of Gabriel's first visitation that we looked at last week. Mary sees the angel's words confirmed through Elizabeth. And then Mary's joy spills out in her own song. She actually gives us the very first Christmas carol. In chapter 1, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her song is often called the Magnificat, taken from the Latin form of the word magnify. Her joy isn't instantaneous. Her joy isn't automatic. And I think that's good to know. Because sometimes I think we hear the word joy and believe that being joyful or having joy means always walking around with a silly smile on your face or, or as though you haven't got a problem in the world. That, you're, that having joy means you always rise above your circumstances, that you just kind of go through life floating on a cloud. Or that really spiritual people never struggle, never get down, never feel overwhelmed. That a joyful Christian is, is always upbeat and free from anxiety. Well, that is not Mary. As faithful and obedient and joyful as Mary is, I think it's important to realize that the birth of her son Jesus will not only be the source of her greatest joy, but also the source of her greatest trouble, heartache, and sorrow. Very soon, she and Joseph will have to pack their bags and flee to Egypt as refugees to escape King Herod's murderous decree. King Herod orders that all boys two years old and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem be put to death because he feared these stories of a child born to be a king. Being on the run, a, a refugee for a number of years, that, that was no joyful experience. Or fast forward to that fateful day when she knelt at the foot of the cross and watched her son's execution. There was nothing joyful about that. Later, yes, at the resurrection, but not that day, her, her sorrow was intense. and She was a mother who felt every bit of her son's agony. So what is this thing called joy? Is joy just a fleeting bit of happiness, a moment of jubilation, and then it's gone, a few seconds of, of euphoria before the, the weight of the world comes crashing in? Well, this fall I was struck by the story of what happened to Rick and Kay Warren. Uh, as you may know, Rick Warren... He's the pastor of the Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, one of the largest churches in the United States. He's the author of The, the Purpose Driven Life, which is 
I think one of the, the best-selling books of all time. And he's looked at as, as a leader in the international evangelical church. I had the privilege of having dinner with him once a few years ago at the Christian Cultural Center in, in Brooklyn. But this fall, their 27-year-old son Matthew committed suicide after a lifetime of struggling with mental illness. And some of Rick Warren's critics, they were almost gleeful to see this tragedy uh, befall him because they think his theology is too shallow or, his, or too trendy or that he wouldn't be able to recover from such a terrible loss. And yet Rick and Kay Warren handled this, this awful tragedy with remarkable grace and courage. Some of you probably saw their interview on TV. And I've been reading what Kay Warren has written about joy and what real joy is. And she writes that she has a new definition of joy. That for her, real joy comes from knowing one simple thing, that God is ultimately in control of our lives. God is ultimately in control of our lives. She wrote something down and she carried it with her so she could remind herself of this powerful truth when when she was feeling shaky. This This is what she wrote. She wrote, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determination to praise God in all things. Did you catch all that? Joy is a settled assurance about God. Joy is a quiet confidence in God. And joy is a determined choice to give praise to God. She went on to write, I I know how profoundly my life is changing. As I develop a settled conviction about God and his goodness. My confidence in God is growing as I trust that he is working behind the scenes to fit together all the details of my life into his good plan. And my determination to give my praise to God is slowly leading me to the joy I've always longed for. I used to think that life came in waves, that there was a a wave of good and pleasant circumstances followed by a wave of bad and unpleasant circumstances with a lot of ebb and flow in between. Or that life was a series of of hills and valleys. And sometimes we're up and then we're down. But I've come to realize that life is really more like a set of parallel train tracks. With joy and sorrow running inseparably throughout our days. Every day of your life, good things happen. Beauty and pleasure, fulfillment and perhaps even excitement occur. That's the track of joy. But every day of your life also holds disappointment and challenges and struggles And perhaps even losses for you and those you love. That's the track of sorrow. Most of us try to outsmart the track of sorrow by by concentrating our our efforts on the joy track as if by our positive outlook or outright denial of reality we can make sorrow go away. But that's impossible because joy and sorrow will always be linked. And in the strange paradox of the universe, at the exact moment you and I are experiencing pain, we are also aware of the sweetness of of loving and the beauty still to be found. Likewise, at the exact moment we are full of delirious delight, we have the nagging realization that things still aren't quite perfect. No matter how positive we think or how hard we try to visualize only happiness, the sorrow track remains. And one of the toughest challenges in life is to learn how to live on both of those tracks at the same time. 
You see, joy and sorrow, parallel train tracks that run through the course of our lives. So during our lifetime, we stand on both tracks. Joy and sorrow are often right next to each other. And that's why you can have have laughter at a funeral or tears at a wedding. But you know, if you stand by a pair of parallel railroad tracks and you look ahead as far as you can see, somewhere in the distant horizon, you know, those parallel tracks become one. They merge in your vision. And they're no longer distinguishable as two separate tracks. That's the way it will be for us, too. Often we don't understand why things happen or where things are leading. And so we live with both joy and sorrow operating in our lives at the same time. And Christmas is often a time when people experience both joy and sorrow. As as families come together, as old wounds or, or old worries resurface, or there's an empty chair at the dinner table. One minute your heart is filled with laughter, and the next minute you're trying to hold back the tears. Joy and sorrow are going on at the same time, all the time. And it will be that way until we meet Christ face to face at life's end. And at that point, the tracks of joy and sorrow merge. The sorrow will disappear forever, and only the joy will remain, and everything will finally make complete sense. Ultimately, everything will be all right. Ultimately, everything will be all right. But until that day comes, we live with these parallel tracks of joy and sorrow. For Kay Warren, true joy means choosing to believe that God is always working and knitting together the fragments of our lives, always in control, and that the details of life will work together for our good and his glory. Of course, we all want the answers now. We want them today. We want them at this moment. And we want more than just simple answers. We want explanations in triplicate. And that's why the world ultimately is in her definition of joy. We may not get all the answers we want in this life. And so we do have to trust that a good God is guiding us, even through our confusions. Joy is much more than a happy, giddy feeling that may come every once in a while. Joy springs from that settled conviction that God is ultimately in control of your life. And you surrender to him. And that's why what Mary experienced as the mother of Jesus. And that's why she could say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Can that be your prayer too this Christmas? Let's pray. Lord, we feel joy and sorrow together. And Lord, we trust in you. So even as Mary's confusion gave way to joy, Lord, we want to trust that even in our life experience, the things that confuse us, the the sorrows that, that, that accompany us, Lord, may we also see the joy that's interwoven in our lives and trust you that ultimately everything will be all right. We thank you now in your name we pray, amen.